Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. You have to act fast if you think you're having a stroke. It's important to know the signs and symptoms and what to do. These days there are more options than there used to be when treating strokes. And we are joined today by Dr. Matt Koenig. He's a neurointensivist at Queen's Medical Center, and he's here in the studio to share the latest in the diagnosis and management of strokes here in the islands. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me again. Now, we've talked in the past several times, and it never is too much to repeat, the classic signs of a stroke and why you should not drive yourself to the ER on your own or wait to see your doctor three days later. What would those classic signs or symptoms be? Stroke is really defined as a sudden onset of a new disability that one did not have. That's, I mean, the term stroke sort of comes with striking you suddenly. So this does, isn't something that occurs over like hours or days. This is something that generally gets worse over minutes. Um, and this, the classic symptoms that we look for are sudden onset of weakness of one side of the body, sudden onset of numbness of one side of the body, difficulty speaking, which could be slurred speech or language problems like speaking gibberish, um, difficulty with balance or coordination, and changes in vision, which could be double vision or blind spots in the visual fields. So those are the top five symptoms that we look for. So if you're having symptoms that are more associated with pain and without weakness and maybe on both sides of your body, probably not a stroke. Probably not. And that's one of the things that I often have people come in and say, you know, I was wondering if I was having a stroke because I felt pain going down my arm. And I go, well, you know, honestly, I'm happy you had pain. And it's not because I wish you harm. But that's a sign that the nerves are working. The body is working. Maybe the nerves really mad at you when it's being pinched. But it's not that it's, it's dying. We're not dealing with stroke in that situation. That's right. So when you have those sudden onset symptoms, it's it's important to, to call 911. We're not expecting people to drive themselves into the hospital. Don't say, let me just get grandma in the car and I'll take you there. You know, there's a reason why people should activate EMS. Why is that? Okay, this is a super important point. So I'm really glad that you brought this up so early in the interview. And, and I think people don't understand it very well. What, why do you call 911? Um, and I actually have asked not just patients and families why they didn't call 911, but I've actually asked medical professionals, like, what is the role of emergency medical services? What is, why call an ambulance when you're having an emergency? And I was really surprised to hear how many people think of an ambulance as a taxi cab to the hospital, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a method of transportation from your home to the hospital that goes a little bit faster than a car might go. And so I've had people say, I didn't call 911 because my wife or my son have, their, have a car and they could drive me to the hospital just as fast as the ambulance would because the ambulance has to get here and then take me there. That's really not the role of the ambulance. The role of the ambulance is that a medical professional comes to your home and a medical professional treats you during transportation to the hospital. Right, sounds simple. Concept sounds simple, but like people actually don't really fully understand that. And in the case of stroke, that is super, super important because 
We've spent a lot of time uh, and effort educating our emergency medical services paramedic colleagues to recognize stroke. They, they use a standard tool called the LA Pre-Hospital Stroke Screen that tells them, okay, this is a person who seems to be having a stroke. And when they identify that a, a patient seems to be having a stroke, they actually begin treatment of that patient in the ambulance. And they take that patient only to hospitals that are capable of managing a stroke, because not every hospital really has the capability of managing uh, an acute stroke. And say, so they, one, begin treatment in the ambulance. Two, they alert the hospital that's receiving the patient, we're bringing you a stroke patient. And that way the hospital stroke service is ready to treat you when you arrive. They're waiting for you when you arrive in the hospital. Um, and three, they only take you to a hospital that's really capable of treating strokes. So whereas if you were to drive to the hospital, you might not go to the right hospital, or you, or, and that hospital may not know that you're coming, um, and you may sit in the waiting room for a while having your stroke, and that's, that's what we do not want to see. Well, and even if, even if somebody says I could call the hospital and tell them I'm on my way, that's still not a medical professional who's assessing someone, doing treatment in the vehicle on the way, and expediting the whole entire process. That's right. So if you think you're having a stroke, you're dialing 911. And the medical professionals, the EMTs, they may come to your house and say, you know what, ma'am, this is not a stroke. And that's great news. They may still transport you to the hospital. But if it is a stroke, this is really expediting your care and treatment and streamlining the process and getting you treatment faster. Right. And, and strokes strokes really not, are not one size fits all. Um, and I think we'll probably get to this later in the discussion, but there's more than one treatment for stroke these days. There's there's new procedures um, that are designed to treat the worst kinds of strokes, the big bad strokes. Um, and we are working with our colleagues in emergency medical services right now to not just identify stroke in the field, but identify is this a patient who should get medications to manage that stroke? Or is this a patient who would benefit from going immediately to a center that does procedures to treat stroke? Um, and hospitals have different levels of capability, and that's really what we're working on. So if it's identified that someone's having a stroke, and granted, there's different types of strokes, so we're using a general term, even though there's different, different elements in, underneath that. If it's identified that they are having this, the previous treatment maybe five, 10 years ago, before we had procedural interventions, would be what exactly? The treatment for, um, the, the standard of care treatment for an, an acute stroke, you know, within a few hours of symptom onset is a medication called TPA, which is a clot buster medication. It's been on the market since 1996, um, and uh, it's still the standard of care for most strokes. And it works really well um, if given very early in the treatment window, certainly within the first 90 minutes of symptom onset, which is pretty short, you know. That's why you call 911. <laughs> right. Certainly within the first 90 minutes is a very effective drug. Um, and it's still the best thing that we have for um, smaller strokes um, in some of the blood vessels that we can't actually get to with a procedure. And presumably when we give the TPA, we've already identified this as more of what we would call a clot stroke than a bleed stroke. So bleed stroke's a little different, not necessarily the same kind of situation. So we're focusing more on the clot strokes for what for our purposes. And so once we've eliminated the potential for a bleed, okay, so we're talking about a clot. And in this situation, 
the TPA or the blood, the clot buster could be fairly effective if given in that window, but it, it's not effective for everybody. There are certain people for whom it may not work, or maybe their symptoms have been longer than 90 minutes, maybe longer than nine days. You just, you don't know. So there's certainly people who would be a candidate for that. Not everybody would. That's right. Maybe we should, should spend like a couple of minutes talking about, because you brought it up and I think it's important, talking about what the different types of strokes are. Um, when I use the term stroke, I really mean what's called ischemic stroke. Ischemic stroke is when there's a blockage of blood flow to the brain, typically from a blood clot that forms within the blood vessel and it blocks blood flow to the brain. If there's no blood flow to part of the brain for more than sometimes minutes even, but certainly hours, then part of the brain starts to die. And if there's enough permanent damage that it causes disability, that's what we call a stroke. Um, and so if, when, when you hear me use the term stroke, I'm referring to blockage of blood flow to the brain. Now, we like to confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> We're good at that in the medical profession. We like to confuse people by using the same term stroke, uh, in this case, hemorrhagic stroke or bleeding stroke, to also describe bleeding into the brain or bleeding around the brain. Um, and that can be from a blood vessel that bursts, usually from high blood pressure, and damages the brain. And it is stroke-like. You know, as a doctor, as a neuro- I'm a decent neurologist. I'm a pretty good neurologist. You are more <laughs> than just decent, I'll tell you. I'm a decent neurologist, um, but even me, like, examining a patient at the bedside, I often can't tell the difference between a stroke that's caused by blockage of blood flow to the brain and a stroke that's caused by bleeding into the brain. Because the symptoms could be extremely uh, similar, if not almost exactly the same. So Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But the management is actually very different. Um, And that's where, you know, some of these capabilities of which hospitals have CT scanners and which can really evaluate the type of stroke that a patient's having. Is it a blockage of blood flow to the brain or is it bleeding into the brain? That's where imaging is very important. So once we've determined that we've got this blockage of blood flow, someone might be a candidate for TPA. And if that's the case, then they could potentially see reversal of their stroke symptoms. That's right. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matt Koenig. He is a neurointensivist at Queens Medical Center. When we come back, we are going to talk some more about what's the next step. If you give this clot buster, what else do we need to do? And what's the latest? Because we've alluded to procedural interventions, another new way that we can really treat extensive strokes and see remarkable recovery. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matt Koenig. He's a neurointensivist at Queens Medical Center. And today we're talking about something that I hope none of you ever have, but statistically is going to happen to some of us, and that is having a stroke. Now, right before the break, we sort of delineated the type of stroke we're talking about. And we're talking about those ischemic strokes, those where the blood flow is no longer present to certain areas of the brain, as opposed to other types of strokes where there's bleeding in the brain. So we're going to focus our efforts more on the the blood blockage that we were describing earlier. 
And we said, you know, for the last 5, 10, maybe you said 1996, maybe 20 years, we've had this clot buster medication that needs a certain window of opportunity or else potentially the brain cells that are not getting oxygen are not going to recover even if you give them the oxygen that they've been deprived of. Now, there are certainly some remarkable stories we've heard of people who got a clot buster and did well. And there are some stories where they get a clot buster and it doesn't do well. And there's no real way to predict prior to that, other than the time element and the particular individual situation, which category someone would be in. So it's worth it to give it a try under certain circumstances, maybe not under all. But if a decision is made to give it, I'm certain you've seen some episodes where there's been remarkable recovery. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've seen patients who get TPA and like before the before the infusion is even completed, they're starting to get better. So there's definitely cases like that that we see. And, and those aren't the exceptions. I mean, we see that pretty often, actually. So another reason to call the ambulance when you think you're having a stroke. But if you were to be in a situation where the clot buster works, that doesn't mean you're out of the woods. Something caused that stroke. So the next step is to figure out what were the reasons why you had it and how can you prevent another one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two, there's uh, several big priorities in the management of somebody who's had a stroke in the hospital. The first one is the acute treatment. Um, and that's definitely the, as a provider, that's the sort of exciting, time-dependent part of it. But the second really big part of the hospitalization for somebody who's had a stroke is to try and figure out what is this person's individual risk factors? Why did this person have this stroke? Because strokes are not like one size fits all. Um, and there are some sort of common generic type risk factors that a lot that are very prevalent in people who have strokes like hypertension and high cholesterol. And then there are very individualized risk factors that patients have. And part of um, you know being cared for by a neurologist who's experienced in taking care of stroke patients is trying to figure out you know what is this person's individual risk factor and what do I need to do for this person that's going to minimize their chance of having another stroke. Because although the TPA or the clot buster might have worked the first time, there's no guarantee it'll work repetitively after that if the type of stroke is different or if the time duration is longer from when you develop symptoms and you seek medical attention. That's right. So now there's some other things that are done. And in fact, even in the last several years, we've seen some significant improvements in the way we can do procedural interventions. So we know that, for example, in your heart, if somebody has a heart attack and there's blockages to the arteries, they will sometimes, if they are in a situation where it's caught and they get taken to a hospital, they can receive an emergency angiogram where they go in there, they try and see where is the blockage, try and open up that blockage and do something to take care of whatever caused it. So that was something we were getting familiar with doing in, in the heart. But no one really was familiar with doing that in the brain. And now there are procedures that can do almost the same thing and actually extract a clot from blood vessels in the brain. How exactly does that work? That's right. Um, so there is something called cerebral angiogram. And, you know, people might be familiar with the term angiogram, mostly, as you say, from cardiology, where we put a needle into the blood vessel at the top of the leg and thread a wire up through those blood vessels and inject dye into the blood vessels and look at them. And that gets referred to as like cardiac cath or coronary angiography. And that may be a term that listeners are familiar with. Listeners are probably less familiar with cerebral angiography, which is really a very similar procedure of putting a wire up through the blood vessels under the skin 
and injecting dye uh, into the blood vessels that go into the brain and looking to see uh, where the blockage is and if it can be treated. And in that case, in some, in some circumstances, it now can be treated. Absolutely. And Something that wasn't done even a few years ago. Yeah, that, absolutely. So we've been getting better over the last decade um, at pulling out clots uh, from the brain. And the first-generation devices that came out, let's say, 10 years ago, um, were you know, about 40% effective. The second-generation devices that came out, say, five years ago, were about 60% effective. And the new third-generation devices that are out now are 80% effective at removing blood clot from the brain. And so the technology has really evolved um, so that we can treat a lot of patients um, with what's called mechanical thrombectomy. Thrombus is the blockage, right? That's the medical term for the blockage that's blocking blood flow to the brain. It's basically like a scab. It's a clot that forms together um, and blocks blood flow to part of the brain. Mechanical thrombectomy means going in and removing the clot by doing a cerebral angiogram, putting a wire up under the skin, injecting dye uh, in the blood vessels, identifying where the blockage is, and then putting a device in that's kind of like a mesh, a wire mesh, we call it a stent retriever, or using a suction device that literally sucks the clot out. Um, and that has really been revolutionary over the last, I would say, three years. That's when the major clinical trials were published. And um, the thing is, as a neurointensivist, um, I treat patients who are critically ill from strokes. I treat the worst of the worst. And these are the patients who have blockages of the major pipes at the base of the brain. These are not small strokes. These are massive strokes that leave people either dead or severely disabled. And those are the strokes that can be treated by mechanical thrombectomy. At this point, we can't go and fish out those tiny clots that are way downstream. We can only pull out the big clots that are at the major pipes at the base of the brain. But those are the strokes that are most disabling and most fatal. And so it has been incredible. I mean, I got to say, as a um, as, an, as a neurointensivist, we see a lot of really bad things. But this year has been absolutely incredible. We're seeing people walking out of the hospital in two or three days who would either be dead or severely disabled after weeks in the hospital. And it's because they've had this this mechanical thrombectomy because they've they've been brought to the attention of a facility that has this capacity and capability and can do it within a time window. We know that there's a time window for doing the TPA. Is there a time window for thrombectomy? And if so, what is that? Yeah, I mean, that's the other incredible thing about um, 2018, you know, just a revolutionary year for stroke treatment. Um, the time window that you alluded to for TPA is four and a half hours. That's the limit. Like, we really can't give clot buster medication beyond four and a half hours from the time the patient was last known to be well. Okay, and that's important. Not when the person was found with symptoms or the time. Because it could have been hours. Yeah. Yeah. About a third of patients who have strokes actually wake up with the deficits. And if you went to bed at 10 o'clock at night and you wake up at 6 o'clock not able to move one side, we don't know when that happened, right? So those patients are automatically or were automatically ineligible for treatment. Um, and so the, the time to remember for clot buster medication is four and a half hours. That's the absolute limit. For mechanical thrombectomy, the time limit can go out as far as 24 hours at this point. That is huge. I mean, that makes you know people who are the worst of the worst strokes now treatable 
and people who woke up with symptoms or had a delay in, in getting to a hospital that can treat them with mechanical thrombectomy, that makes them now treatable. And these are the folks sometimes walk out of the hospital a few days later. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, learning about the latest in stroke management. When we come back, I'll continue my discussion with Dr. Matt Koenig, neurointensivist, and we're going to talk about where the future of stroke treatment may be. Is there a way that we can even see this dramatic improvement occur It may be faster or maybe even more extensively throughout the treatment that we provide for people, unfortunately, suffering strokes. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Matt Koenig. He's a neurointensivist at Queens Medical Center, and we're here to talk about strokes. What are the latest in treatments, and what are the advances that we've made, even in the last couple of years, that have really dramatically improved the chances of successful treatment and less disability in people who happen to suffer these types of what we call ischemic strokes or blood clot related strokes that are unfortunately blocking blood flow to the brain. Now, before the break, we talked a little bit about procedural interventions, and that's something that is new and someone who has symptoms for up to 24 hours potentially could benefit from. Now, we've talked earlier about the fact that brain cells need oxygen, and when those brain cells don't get the oxygen they need, that causes them to undergo some level of destruction. If somebody is almost 24 hours out from a stroke and they're eligible for this procedural intervention, can they completely recover? Do we see that some of those brain cells almost go dormant for a while and then recover once we give them the blood flow they need? Yeah, and I want to be very careful about how we discuss this. Okay, so there's a phrase in stroke care that says time is brain, right? And that is still very much the case that every minute that goes by you are potentially losing brain cells permanently. And the treatment window for certain kinds of strokes uh, can be up to 24 hours. Um, I want to make sure that people understand. Don't sit around do and wait because wait. I still have 12 more hours. Right. Do right. not wait. I mean, the, the, fa- the, the thing I said at the beginning is still true, that within the first 90 minutes, that's where people benefit the most. So we want to see people treated within 90 minutes of symptom onset. Like, that is the most important thing that people can do to survive a stroke. So I want to be careful so people aren't hearing, like, okay, I can sit around for a few more hours before no, I go you into can't. the hospital. So time is still brain, but there is this uh, concept that we call collaterals, collateral circulation. And I think collateral, that's a term that's probably familiar to most people, but the way I would describe it to patients is, like, if you're driving on H1, right, let's say from the west side, and traffic is blocked, right? There's an accident, and the traffic is absolutely stopped, right? So your cars are not getting through that blockage. The way that you get to work is you take side streets, right? And that's the same same concept as collateral blood vessels, which is that if you have a big blockage at the the pipes, the carotid artery or the vertebral or basilar artery, the big fat pipes at the base of your brain, if those are blocked— Some people have collaterals, right? Some people have these little side streets and alleys that blood flow can still get through past the blockage. Other people do not. 
right? And we can't really predict who has them and who doesn't have them. You might have some ideas of, okay, so if a person has been smoking like a chimney and not taking care of themselves, over time they may block off vessels and therefore the brain would create these collaterals. Whereas a young person who's healthy probably doesn't have a lot of collaterals because they don't have that much wear and tear on the vessels. That's really not the case. It's it's unpredictable who has these and who doesn't have the, them. And there's no way to know. There's no way to know. Yeah, there's no way to know. So I don't know what my collaterals are like, and I don't know what your collaterals are like. So if one of us blocks off blood flow to the brain, like I can't guarantee that you're going to have some flow there to keep that brain kind of healthy, but say dormant or sleep, asleep would be a way to think about it. So... If somebody luckily has the collaterals and they have this procedure, they could potentially restore the major artery to their blood flow to their brain. And then, you know, great. Now they have that. The collaterals are no longer stressed. They have the blood flow and they can see the recovery. And as you mentioned, there are some dramatic stories of recovery that that you've seen personally in your work in the neuro ICU. Where do you think I mean, with such amazing advances that we've seen thus far, where do you see stroke treatment going in the next five years? I mean, now that we've, we've TPA has been around for a while, now we've got mechanical thrombectomy and significant recovery from that. What's next? Where do you, other than let's prevent strokes, which is clearly in the background of, hey, wouldn't it be great if no one had these? Where do you think we're going to go in the future with stroke treatment? Well, it's a very timely question. Um, and this week, the International Stroke Conference, which is um, an, an event hosted by the American Heart Association, uh, and that's you know medical professionals in stroke from all around the world come together annually and discuss the latest and greatest in research in stroke um, and stroke care. And so that is actually happening in Honolulu, right down the street at the convention center uh, over the next few days. And so I may have even more information for you after that's done. But um, so where, you know, what, what are the, the newest innovations and what's coming down the pipeline? I think um, we talked about pushing the window for treatment for thrombectomy, meaning going in, pulling the clot out, out to 24 hours. The way you select patients for that, as I kind of alluded to in this discussion about collaterals, is to use imaging. There's special imaging that we can tell, is the brain stunned but still salvageable? Meaning it's not working and a person looks like they're having a stroke, but if I pull that clot out and restore blood flow to the brain, it will recover versus brain that is already gone, right? The stroke is done, and I don't want to restore blood flow to that. If you restore blood flow to brain that's already dead, it swells and it bleeds, right? So it causes even more problems. Right. So after, you know, there's a point of no return where you say, I don't want to restore blood flow to that dead tissue. It's going to cause more harm than good versus, you know, brain that is dysfunctioning and it's stunned, but it's still getting some trickle flow through to keep it healthy. And I want to restore blood flow to that brain. And so the real advances are in using uh, using imaging, which can be MRI based or can be CAT scan based to determine is this brain still salvageable or is it already past the point of no return? And using that image guidance to determine, should I treat this patient or not, right? So that we've already kind of done that. There's still some refinement to be done, but that's how we select patients for mechanical thrombectomy out to 24 hours at this point. 
The next step, I think, is to go back to TPA and other clot buster medications and use the same kind of image guidance to say, okay, this patient doesn't have a blockage that I can get to with a catheter, but maybe I should give them a clot buster even though they're beyond four and a half hours, and I'm going to use imaging to figure out if I should do that or not. So that's definitely coming. So we're seeing some incredible advances in the world of stroke. And in fact, even beyond that, I suspect that we will still hopefully see even more advances while we continue to work on the prevention aspect, which is really the key, is trying to prevent these episodes in any way we can. And if you think you're having a stroke, don't sit at home. Don't think you got 24 hours. 911. Go to the emergency room, and it may not be the one nearest to you. You mentioned that some some centers are going to be better at getting a stroke team in, in, in place rather than others. You know, we could have a discussion all day long about the latest in stroke, and I promise we're going to do it again soon. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. Dr. Matt Koenig is a neurointensivist at Queens Medical Center. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about health topics right here on The Body Show. See you then.